If you were here on launch Sunday, we started a series called What Kind of Family Is This? And the idea behind these last several weeks has basically been that we wanted you to know that when you walk into this room, when you walk into this place, that you're not just walking into just a community or just a gathering or just a group of friends, but that really you're walking into a family that we are the family of God, and that families are meant to function in a certain way. And so really, this is a series that, honestly, we could spend a lot of time on. In fact, our launch team, we spent literally almost a year just talking about what kind of church we want to be, laying the foundation for what kind of church we want to be. But we're going to conclude this series today with with our third kind of topic. And, And it's not really so much that these are the most important topics. It's that they are the most important topics for this season that we're in. And so if you were here for Launch Sunday, you may remember that we began by kind of talking about how we are a family that is for the lonely. The the Psalms say that God sets the family, the lonely in families. And we believe that that is really strategic wording, that, that you can have community, that you can have friends, but that ultimately what you were created to belong to was a family. And that when you are lonely, the cure for that loneliness is not just to be surrounded by people, but it's to belong to a family. That you can actually be surrounded by people and still be lonely. And so the answer for that is to belong to a family. And then we moved the next week, we talked about the idea of being a family that is fearless. And this is one that really I felt strong about in this season, because as we talked about last week, fear is really kind of having its moment in culture right now. I think that fear is more widespread and more accepted and more celebrated than it has probably ever been in any other time in any of our lifetimes. And so we talked about how when we choose to be a family that is fearless, that is actually a testimony to the world of our faith in Jesus Christ when we choose to be a family that is fearless. And today, I wanna talk to you about how we are committed to be a family that grows. That we are committed to be a family that grows. When, when I was growing up, we were a family of five. Uh, it was my parents and me, and I have an older brother and sister. And I don't know why I enjoyed this, but for some reason when I was a kid, we would usually go out to eat on Sundays after church or on Wednesday nights after church, and I liked to be the one to tell the hostess how many people we had in our party. I don't know why, I just have a very specific memory of enjoying being that person who kind of gathered up the number and let them know exactly how many people we were going to have. And so a lot of times it was just our family. And so I would always go up to the hostess station and I would say, we are the Rippies, we are Rippy Party of Five. Rippy Party of Five. And from the time I was like nine or 10 years old, I remember loving to be the person to say, we're Rippy Party of Five. And then I remember when I was 13 years old and my brother had the audacity to get engaged and to add someone to our number. And so now we were no longer just Rippy Party of Five. We were now Rippy Party of Six. And he ended up marrying her and they had kids. And then my sister got married and she had kids. And then I got married and we had kids. And so now when we go places, we are no longer Rippy Party of Five. We are Rippy Party of Seventeen. There are now 17 of us, kids and adults combined, and that is just when we roll with just our direct family. We like to roll even larger and go out with aunts and uncles and cousins, and it just gets to the point where really you can't even go anywhere. You have to bring everything home because you're not, gonna, you're not going to put that on somebody else to take care of basically your mini family reunion that's just a Sunday lunch. But I think we understand the idea that ultimately healthy families grow. 
They don't stay the same over generation over generation. They grow in size. They grow in number. And when something that is healthy is not growing, it's cause for concern. It's cause to look at it and to wonder why is this happening, to try to diagnose why this is happening. One of the most frustrating moments in our parenting journey so far involved our second daughter, Sophia. When she was little, she was a very little baby. Our, our, our babies tended to be very little. They were fine, but they were very little. And one day we were at basically a well visit with her, and I actually had taken her alone that day. So there was no issue that we knew of to be concerned of. We weren't taking her in because she was sick or because there was a problem. It was just a routine well visit. And so the doctor came in and kind of went through the normal things. And then the doctor began to ask questions that I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I hope you haven't experienced this. But sometimes when you're in an appointment with a doctor, there is a point where you can tell that they're asking questions because they have something in mind that you are unaware of. And really what you want to just know is where are these questions going? Why are you asking me this new set of questions? And finally, this doctor let us know. Basically, she said, well, I'm concerned about Sophia. I think that, you know, she's not really growing the way she should be. And that perhaps we would even classify her as something we call failure to thrive. Now, I had never heard this term before, but you can tell by the term itself, it's not a positive thing. Failure and thriving don't really go together. So failure to thrive sounded really scary to me. And she basically said, you know, we're just really going to keep an eye on this. We're going we're gonna to check next time you come in. There's nothing really for us to necessarily do at this point because it's not that serious. But we'll just keep an eye on it next time she comes in. And this led to several months in between our next well visit of basically fear and uncertainty and of us trying to feed Sophia all kinds of like extra fattening foods and trying to really up her diet, which she wasn't really having. And we were full of fear. We were concerned because we know that healthy things should grow. And when we hear that something healthy is not growing, we know that it's a problem. Now, just, just so you guys know, she is perfectly healthy. And in fact, in her specific case, we went back to that well visit. We happened to have another doctor who was in the rotation. She didn't say a word about it. So we asked her about it and she said, oh, I don't, I'm looking back at her chart. I don't even know why, she would have, why the other doctor would have said that. She's fine. And so we spent basically three months worried and afraid and fearful because something that we loved, something that we cherished was not growing the way it should be growing. And I think we understand this idea that healthy children, healthy families should grow, but I don't know if we always recognize that a healthy church should grow, that the church should be a living, functioning family that grows. And over the last year and a half, the pandemic has really shaped our, our view of what in life is important. In fact, if you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, the way they kind of determined whether businesses could stay open or whether people could keep working was they were classifying things as either essential or non-essential. Essential or non-essential. And I think regardless of what the government determined, I think unfortunately there were a lot of people who were sitting in churches and attending churches and part of churches, but when they were faced with this idea of whether or not the church was actually essential to their lives, they chose to recognize that it was not essential that they did not need to be a part of the church. And in fact, when church doors began to open back up, many people did not return. And I think it's a problem when we begin to view the church as non-essential. 
when we begin to look at the things in our lives and we choose the church as something that is non-essential. I think sometimes the church gets a bad rap. You'll hear people say things like, I love Jesus, I wanna follow Jesus, I love his teachings, but I don't really love the church. The problem is that the church is the vehicle that Jesus set in place to advance his kingdom. And so when we try to separate the church from Jesus, we can't, we can't do that. We cannot separate something that he put in place from him because it was his idea. It was his intention. In fact, if we look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, beginning in verse 7, this is Paul, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about serving in the church and the privilege that that is. And listen to what he says. Beginning in verse 7, he says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms and according to his eternal purposes, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, his Lord. Now, now listen to that in verse 10. He says, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. And he goes on to say, basically that which God accomplished through Jesus Christ, that the intent of the church is to make that known to the world. That is a very important mission. That is a very important, essential part of advancing the kingdom of God to say that the church was God's intent to show his love and his goodness and his mercy to the world. Because what that means is that for you and for me is that when we show love, when we show grace, when we show mercy to the people around us, what we are really doing is we are showing them the character and the nature of God. And that is essential to advancing the kingdom. Everything that God intends to do on the earth, he intends to do through the church. The church is the visible, tangible representation of Christ to the world. It is the vehicle that God created. It's his idea. It's what he established. And I think it is time for us to restore the value of a healthy, growing church. That, that we recognize that a healthy, growing church is not an option in a community. It's essential to a community. That people within a community know that, in fact, their community, their homes, their businesses, their lives, their families are actually affected positively when there is a healthy, growing church in that community. That we cannot have enough healthy, growing churches in a community, which is why we are here. See, all throughout Scripture, what we see is that Jesus believes in the church and that when he speaks about the future of the church, when he speaks about the kingdom, he uses the language and metaphors of growth. He uses the language and metaphor of growth. We see him many times compare the kingdom of God to a seed. He talks multiple times about the kingdom of God being like a seed or like leaven or even like units of money, things that when they are invested in, they grow. See, a seed is never intended to remain a seed. 
A seed is never intended to remain in the ground. A seed is never intended to make or to stay hidden. Its very purpose is to grow into something else. And the church, in the same way, is not meant to be complacent and content with where it is, but always looking to the future that God has for it. The church should be a growing family. So so if Jesus believed in the church, it's time for us to believe in it as well. And there's this moment in Matthew chapter 25 where we're kind of on the tail end of Jesus basically telling parables about what the kingdom of God will look like. What living in the kingdom of God, what functioning in the kingdom of God is intended to look like. And we, we always pay attention to what people say, but we also pay attention very closely to when people say something. It's important the timing of when someone says something to you. And in this moment, we're just days away from Jesus going to the cross. And so it's like Jesus knows this future that's set before him. And time after time in this passage, he's giving parable after parable, describing what the kingdom of God is like. And so it's really like Jesus knows, hey, I know where this is going. I know there is going to be a time where I am not with you. And so I want to make sure that you know what the kingdom of God is intended to be like. And so I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you're trying to explain something to a vast amount of people, to different kind of people who think different ways, but what Jesus does is a lot like what you and I would do, which is he uses multiple metaphors. He doesn't just say, oh, this is the way the kingdom is and leave it at that. He keeps saying, this is the way the kingdom is. It's like a lost coin. The kingdom is like leaven. The kingdom is like talents. The kingdom is like seeds. In other words, he's speaking to these different people who may understand it a different way. And he comes to this moment where in chapter 25, he's using this idea of a unit of money, essentially. And he's talking about talents. And it begins in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 14. He begins by saying again, And remember, he's saying again because this is not the first time he has said what the kingdom is supposed to be like. He says again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money. To another, two talents. And to another, one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went away on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also, the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness." The man with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. Well, then you should have at least put my money on deposit so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So now in this moment, 
what Jesus is highlighting to us is that we had these three different servants who were each given three different amounts of money, and two of them brought increase to what they were given. And one of them hid it in the ground and gave him back exactly what he had given him. And I believe that what Jesus is trying to say in this moment is that in the kingdom of God, preservation is not stewardship. Just holding on to what God gives you is not stewardship. That, that if God gives you something to steward, that he expects that that thing will grow. That he expects you not just to hide it and bring just that back to him. And that is what we have with the church, is that God has given us the church to advance his kingdom, and he expects it to grow under our stewardship. He expects it to increase under our stewardship. And I think that Jesus uses this idea of finances in this moment because just like now, then we can all relate to this idea of money. We can all relate to the idea of finances. We can all understand whether we're actually taking the steps to plan for it properly. We can all understand that we are much better off if we plan financially for our future, if we invest for our future. If in our future we have more than we have now, we understand that we will be better off. And so we invest in our future because we know that that money is going to be necessary for our future. But the question is, do we believe in the church enough to invest in the church because we believe it is essential to our future? Because Jesus believed that the church was essential enough to our future that we should invest and grow in it. And we should feel the same way. We should be willing to invest in the church in the same way that we invest in our finances, expecting growth, expecting a return. Because God's intention is that it will affect the future, that it will be necessary in the future. And this is not just something that we see in the New Testament. We actually see all throughout Scripture, even when there are prophecies about the church, they're all about growth and increase. In fact, there's this moment in the book of Isaiah, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Isaiah is a book of prophecies, which means there was basically a man who was foretelling of things that would eventually happen, that would be fulfilled in the future. And in chapter 55 of Isaiah, he speaks of, the, of Jesus. He talks about a coming Messiah. He says that there will essentially be someone who comes to reconcile those who follow God with him. And then if you jump ahead to chapter 56, what you'll find is that it's a, it's a prophecy about salvation. It's a prophecy about how ultimately what Jesus does will result in salvation. But wedged right in between those two chapters, what you'll find is a prophecy about the church. It's literally about you and I. And it's talking about the church. And so it's almost as if by wedging that prophecy about the church in between Jesus and salvation, what the picture is that Jesus will come and bring salvation, but there will also be some work to do in the in-between, that there will be people that need to point to the work of Jesus in order to lead people to salvation. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says, and this is something that I, I talked with our launch team about about a year ago because I really felt like God was kind of speaking this over our church. But it begins in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, and he's using this metaphor of a barren woman who has never had a child. And he says, sing, O barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And listen to this. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out 
to the right and to the left. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Essentially, what this prophet is saying is that you need to prepare for increase. You need to prepare for more. See, he would have been talking to a group of people that at the time actually lived in tents. So so he was saying, enlarge the place where you live. Enlarge the place where you dwell. Make it larger so that there is more room for more people to come into that place. And see, I think for us as a church, we have to prepare for the increase that God has for us. And that in many ways, that begins on a personal level. That begins on our own desire to welcome people into our home, as it were. We have to examine our own hearts if there is any type of person or people group or prejudice that we have put up that that would cause us to not want someone to walk into this house to not want someone to be a part of what God is doing. And the prophet is saying, no, enlarge the place of your tent, lengthen your cords, and strengthen your stakes. It's very similar to if if you had this understanding that the first apartment that you lived in as a married couple at some point will no longer be acceptable for you when you start to have children and your family starts to grow. You have to expand that place. And the prophet is saying, prepare for increase. Be ready for more. And Harbor Church is a place that there that will always be finding ways and looking for ways to prepare for the more that God has for us, to prepare for the increase that God has for us. As if the church is made up of you and me, then in order for the church to grow, we have to grow. Like on a personal level, we have to grow. We have to be people who are committed to the process of growth because God's intention is that we as the church would represent him in the earth. And so we must be the ones to grow. That there is this personal application of this where it talks about lengthening the cords and strengthening the stakes. In other words, you can't lengthen the cords and you can't make the tent larger if you don't also reinforce the foundation of that tent. Because if you make the tent bigger, all you have when winds of adversity come and winds of change come, all you have is a larger tent to be carried away by those winds. You have to strengthen the stakes. You have to be willing to grow. In other words, you could say it this way, that in order for us to grow wide, we have to be willing to go deep. We have to be willing to go deep if we want to grow wide. That is what he's saying in this moment. And see, what we realize as a church is that if we are committed to grow, then we have to be committed to the same things that grow a family. See, if we go back to kind of the beginning where I was saying that I had a family of five that turned into a family of 17, the way that turned into a family of 17 was essentially through marriages and having children. Marriages and having children. And in the same way, a church grows through commitment and intimacy, Just as a family grows through commitment and intimacy, a church grows by being committed to one another, committed to the vision of the house, and willing to be intimately involved in one another's lives. Like we can just show up and we can just kind of see how things go and be a part of a service and sit in on a service, or we can be committed to the house and committed to being intimately involved in each other's lives. And so I just want to quickly give you a few things that as we commit to growth can so often be barriers to growth in our own lives, because these are the very same things that can be barriers to growth in the life of our church. 
Because if the church is going to grow, we have to grow. And so we have to personally be committed to go through these barriers and push through to growth if we also want to see the church grow. It begins with a commitment to one another and to the house. Number one, I want you to say a barrier to growth is comparison. Comparison is a barrier to growth. Comparison takes your eyes off of where you are, which is exactly where God wants to grow you. God wants to grow you exactly where you are, and comparison will take your eyes off of that. I can tell you in my own life that comparison steals the energy that you need to grow. Because when you start to compare, instead of using energy on growing yourself, you are exhausting that energy on second-guessing, regret, and jealousy. I can't tell you how many times my energy has been stolen by second-guessing, regret, and jealousy. Comparison will cause you to hide gifts that you should be sharing. Comparison will cause you to hide gifts that you should be sharing. When I was growing up, one of our family's favorite movies, I've literally probably seen this movie 200 times, was Father of the Bride. My family loves Father of the Bride. I don't know, I don't know how it got started, but it was like, by the time I was like three years old, I knew that movie. I could quote that movie. I drive my family nuts when I watch it because I say the lines right before they say the lines. And I know it's annoying, but I still do it. But there's this one scene in the movie that I remember even as a little kid made me really sad. And the family is out playing basketball and it's the father of the bride and the future son-in-law is there as well. They're playing basketball and the son-in-law just kind of offhand mentions that his parents are going to be bringing their wedding gift by. And so the father of the bride gets really excited and he's like, oh, I didn't realize we were doing gifts now. I'll, you know, I'll be right back. And he leaves and we see him go upstairs and he gets this gift that he's so excited about. It's wrapped. He brings it down. He sets it on the counter. It's this nice box. It's all wrapped up. And as he sets it on the counter, he hears the in-laws pull up. So he peeks out the window and he sees the in-laws pull up in a brand new convertible with a bow on it. And they toss the keys to his daughter, and she's all excited. And, and he looks over at his box that's on the counter, which, by the way, is a cappuccino maker. He looks over at his box on the counter. He hears his daughter start to come in the door, and he immediately grabs the box and tries to hide it in the kitchen. And I think so often that's what we do with the gifts that God gives us that are intended to be given. But then we jump on social media and we jump on whatever it may be and we see the gifts that other people have and we try to hide our cappuccino maker gift because it's not near as good as the other gifts that we see people giving. And so we hide the gifts that should be given. The only problem is that as we saw in the parable of the talents is that when we hide our gifts, we get no increase on those gifts. When we hide the gift, God can't do what he wants to do with that gift when we hide it. And so often what we end up doing is we hide gifts that we need to be giving because we are comparing them to the gifts of others. We are comparing them to the gifts of others. And I feel like you can't really mention comparison without at least mentioning social media because this is the place where we do most of our comparison. Comparing. This is the best place for us to do our comparing. But this is what I can tell you about social media is that most of the time social media is not real. But I can tell you all of the time social media is not all. It is not the whole picture. We are comparing everything we know about ourselves to small things that we see about other people. 
We see a glimpse into their life and we compare it to our entire life. We don't actually know the fullness of what they're going through. We don't actually know the fullness of their struggle. We don't actually know what they had to get to to build up to what they're doing. We just see it and we know that we're not there yet and we feel insufficient. And so instead of pressing forward, we step back and we hide our gifts. We have got to press through comparison if we're going to grow. We have to get past comparison. Number two is denial. Denial. You cannot grow in an area that you refuse to acknowledge needs attention. You cannot grow in an area that you refuse to acknowledge needs attention. The, the last house that we lived in, uh, we had a shed in our backyard that when we moved in, we knew that the shed was not in great condition. Um, it it kind of had some issues with it, but it was good enough that we stored some things in it. We stored just Christmas decorations and, and things like that. And one day I was in the shed cleaning it out and working, and I looked up and I saw light coming through the roof. And light should not come through any roof. Um, and so I was looking and I saw, I got up on the roof and I found there was just a very small hole in the roof. And so I called a few friends, a few people that would know better exactly how I should fix this problem. And they gave me some advice, told me it was a fairly easy fix. And, but I had to go and get some supplies and things like that. I knew I wasn't going to do it that day. So I put a temporary fix on it. I just put a tarp over it and kind of nailed some boards around it so that it would keep it down temporarily, keep some water out, that kind of thing. And then a few months went by, and I kind of forgot about it. I kind of didn't remember that there was a hole in the roof of the shed until one day I did, and I went out, and I thought, I got to fix this hole in the shed. So I got up on the roof, and what was literally a hole that was probably about the size of a silver dollar had turned into about a three-foot area that was completely caved in underneath the tarp. Basically, the entire roof was ruined. Because when you refuse to take care of a problem, the problem grows instead of you. Like if you had just gone, if you had just dealt with the problem initially, you would have grown from that experience. But when you choose to deny that there is a problem, the problem grows instead of you. See, if you will acknowledge a problem when it begins, it's actually easier to deal with. Like the sooner you acknowledge an issue in your life that needs attention, the easier it is to attend to. See, what was literally a cheap, quick fix three months ago was now I needed to have the entire roof of my shed redone. That the damage was so vast that I had to have this major work done, all because I just denied that there was really a problem. I never gave attention to the problem. And left unattended, those problems will continue to grow. Number three barrier to your growth is impatience impatience. I can't tell you how relevant this one is to my own life where we just want God to move faster and quicker than we're moving. We want God to meet us at our pace rather than meeting him at his. And so many times I've had to come back to this verse in 2 Peter 3, 9. This is the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some perceive slowness. See, I think so often what we perceive as slow is actually God's patience with us. 
It's actually God patiently waiting for us to grow into that thing that he's called us to. It's God patiently waiting for us to grow in the ways that we need to grow in order to step into the new season. And we're asking God to to meet us at our pace when God is not being slow. He's being patient with us. He's being kind to us. He's not taking us to a place that we're not ready to step into. And finally, barrier to your growth is avoiding pain. Avoiding pain. We avoid pain at all costs, and sometimes that's a necessary thing to do. But I think we need to realize that sometimes the pain that we avoid is actually pain that is necessary to our growth. Uh, just a couple years ago, my, my same daughter that originally they said maybe was having some growth problems, uh, we were up working at a camp in Connecticut and she got bit by a, a tick and we didn't know that she actually had gotten bitten by it. But one day like this bullseye shape showed up on her back. She was complaining of joint pain. She was uh, running a fever. She broke out in a rash. And So we took her to the doctor there in Connecticut and they basically gave her this really strong antibiotic for almost a month that um, they kind of kept an eye on her while we were up there and we took her back. It all kind of went away. But after the end of that month, they said, you know, so far so good. They tested her blood. They said the infection is out of her blood, but they said just, if you see any of these same symptoms within the next like 90 days or so, you need to bring her back immediately because sometimes this infection comes back. And we have to run this same course of antibiotic. We have to run this same thing and kind of flush that out of her system again. And so everything seemed fine. And then kind of towards the end of that window, we were back home in Florida and she started complaining of joint pain again. She started complaining that her knees were hurting and that she didn't feel like she could walk and and her knees were in pain. And so we took her to the doctor again and they checked her out. They ran blood work, they checked on everything, and they called us back and they said, the pain that your daughter is experiencing is growing pains. There's nothing wrong with her. There is no infection. There is no problem. It's just growing pains. And I can't tell you in that moment how thankful we were for growing pains. Not just because that meant that she didn't have this infection, but here is a girl that we had been told maybe wasn't growing properly, and now we're being told this pain that she's having is actually a sign that she is healthy and that she is growing in a way that she should be. And I think for many of us, sometimes we perceive pain as a problem. We perceive pain as an issue when often pain is something that God is growing us through. We're walking through something that it feels painful. And so we want the answer to that pain when the answer to that pain is growth. The answer is simply growing out of that pain. It is the solution for our problem. But so often we avoid that pain when what we're really doing is avoiding the growth that God has for us. And I want us to be a people and I want us to be a church that are committed to growing as individuals so that we can sustain the growth that God has for us as a church. That that we can be those strengthened stakes that can sustain the increase that God is bringing to us. That we can be those strengthened foundation that God can use in order to advance his kingdom. But we have to be people who are willing and committed individually to grow so that we can grow as a community. Would you bow your heads with me this morning and close your eyes?